again and welcome everybody. Thank you for tuning in to this year's final installment of Horror Palooza, the horror podcast that belongs dead. We belong dead. I, of course, am your host, Sir Ian Dangerous, aka your Uncle Frank, and I'm back one last time this year to go over the 10 final movies in the 31 for 31 October Horror Movie Marathon for 2022. It has been it's been a hell of a year so far. We've seen some incredible movies, uh, some surprise gems, some stellar remakes, uh, uh, a couple of disappointing attempts, including one depressingly off-base sequel. And of course, we've watched a lot of this year's special theme, folk horror. So as you probably know, I've got these pesky rules I've got to follow every year. They are self-imposed, of course, so I can't complain too much. But they exist to force me out of my comfort zone and make me try to find movies I otherwise might not have fit into this year's marathon. So as a quick refresher, they are, uh, number one, I can't watch any film I've watched in the last five years. Number two, at least three of the movies I watched this year have to be in another language besides English. So three Three languages other than English I have to watch. Uh, I have to watch at least two films from every decade. That's pre-1940s to the present. 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, aughts, teens, and now 20s. Uh, two films from every decade. Number four, uh, multiple films from one franchise count as one movie. Remakes don't count, but uh, if it's like Chucky 2 and Chucky 3, it counts as one. Must be horror movies and defensible as such. Uh, seems obvious, but I have had to defend a couple of movies as being horror movies. And finally, this year's special bonus rule. I have to watch at least one folk horror film from each decade. So uh, 10 horror films total? Nine? I gotta look. But uh, that's a lot of folk horror films. So... How am I doing so far, you may be wondering. Well, let's take a look before we get into the last 10 films here. So far, the movies that I have watched this year. Number one, Witchfinder General, Vincent Price from 1968. Number two, Eyes of Fire, folk horror film from 1983. Number three, Terrified, Aterrados from 2017. Number four, God Told Me To from 1976. Barbarian was number five, 2022. Just came out. It is currently on HBO, though, if you want to watch it there. Uh, the Undying Monster came in at number six from 1942. Number seven, the Hellraiser remake from this year, 2022, over on Hulu right now, streaming. Number eight was Lepterica from 1973. Number nine was The Beach House, a little body horror action from 2019. Number 10, Phil Tippett's brilliant, brilliant Mad God from 2021, Stop Motion Insanity. Number 11, Hell House LLC, some found footage horror from 2015. Number 12, City of the Dead from 1960, early Christopher Lee film. Number 13, Snake Girl and the Silver-Haired Witch, some odd Japanese stuff, Scooby-Doo-ish from 68. Uh, number 14, St. Maud 
Very, very intense film from 2019, currently on Prime, if you want to check that one out. Number 15 was Son of Frankenstein, Basil Rathbone, 1939, over on Peacock right now, if you want to check that out. Number 16, Lake of the Dead, from 1958. Number 17, Head of the Family, uh, Schlock, Schlocky Schlock, from 1996. Number 18, Malignant, from last year, 2021. Currently streaming on HBO right now if you want to see the absolute insanity that that movie is. Number 19, Dark Waters from 1993. Some uh, very creepy Lovecraftian folk horror there. Number 20 was House of Wax, the remake from 2005, which is if you must torment yourself with this movie, it is on Fubo and streaming on AMC. And finally, number 21 was Halloween Ends from 2022, which is currently, of course, still in theaters. And you can stream it on Peacock if you like to make yourself suffer. Now, most of those uh, you can find currently streaming on Shudder. The exception, of course, being Witchfinder General, which I had on Blu-ray. Uh, and I think all the rest I told you where you could watch or they were blue. Yeah, they, they're all on Shudder pretty much. So at this point, I, I pretty much filled. Yeah, no, I've got all my foreign films done. Uh, I have I watched Terrified. In Spanish, Leptirica was in Yugoslavian, Snake Girl, and The Silver-Haired Witch was in Japanese. That's all three of my foreign language films. Uh, as far as the decades, I've got uh, the 40s are taken care of, Undying Monster, Son of Frankenstein. Now, the 50s, I still owe one to the 50s. I've only got Lake of the Dead in there. 60s, I've watched three, Witchfinder General, City of the Dead, and Snake Girl, and Silver-Haired Witch. 70s, I'm good. Uh, God Told Me To and Leptirica, both from the 70s. The 80s, I still owe one to the 80s. Eyes of Fire uh, is the only one I've watched there. So let's see. 90s, Head of the Family was uh, in the 90s and Dark Waters. So I got the 90s are good. Uh, the 2000s was just House of Wax. I still owe one to the 2000s. Uh, the 10s is all good. Beach House, Terrified, Hell House, LLC, and St. Maud, all from the 10s. And 20s, Barbarian, Hellraiser, Mad God, Malignant, Halloween Ends, also all Good, but I've got to buckle down and watch a folk horror film from the, the aughts, the 10s, and the 20s. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's between that and the 80s and the 50s, over half my remaining movies are accounted for. So the question is, did I pull it off? Well, I'll tell you in a second, but for right now, of course, got to do some business. Please go follow me on Twitter at SkinlessWonder or on Instagram at SirIanDangerous. Instagram, of course, is where you'll see all the lists of the movies and images from each one if you want to check those out over there. And of course, please go check out my musical contributors, the Tiki Creeps, at tikicreeps.com. They are a great horror surf rock band, if you like that sort of thing, which I do. And as always, a shout out to my sound designer, 414Beg. You can find him on the gram where he posts a lot of his amazing, moody, beautiful music that you may have heard in movies like March with the Devil or The Mimic. So go follow him too and then come right back here. And of course, you know how it goes. Like, share, subscribe, review, all that good stuff that helps this little show grow. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends, tell your family, write about it on Gam Gam's Tombstone, whatever works. Spread the good word about your old pal and also hit me up. Let me know your thoughts. Find me on, on Twitter. Scream at me. Whatever you want to do. So now that that is out of the way, we can get into what brings us all to the dance, the movies. The horror movies. The last 10 horror movies of this year. I had a lot of fun with these 10. 
Uh, some really good ones here, so let us get started right away with number 22. It was Evil of Dracula. So I recently found myself in possession of an awesome Arrow Blu-ray set of Michio Yamamoto's Toho-produced Bloodthirsty Trilogy from the 70s. Uh, there are three movies. They're connected not in plot, per se. They're not uh, continuous plots, but they are connected in theme. And that theme is Vampires. All three can be watched without needing to watch the other ones, and so I just happened to select the, the third produced one, the latest one, Evil of Dracula from 1972, which came after the two previous ones, The Vampire Doll and Lake of Dracula. So Dracula himself is never actually referenced in Evil of Dracula, although he is kind of in the other two, and the name is basically just there for recognition value. In Japan, the films were called The Bloodthirsty Doll, Bloodthirsty Eyes, and Evil of Dracula was called The Bloodthirsty Rose. So even with the name differences, the connective tissue between the 1960s depiction of the Count as played by Mr. Christopher Lee and the way that the lead vampire is depicted here is very clear, and that's a good thing. And that's really the connection between Dracula and these movies. Um, Evil of Dracula also has ties to the other Hammer horror films, of the preceding decade. And while those films had become outdated and somewhat passe in the West, Japan had discovered a love for the atmosphere, the misty dark woods, and the, the terror of someone with a pale white face and long canines jumping out at you from a dark room. And Hammer Horror was immensely popular in Japan, where the films that were receiving X ratings and critical outrage at the Technicolor Gore in the UK were being released uncensored and appraised critically in the East. A horror of Dracula, many times butchered by the censors in its homeland, was found in its original form completely unmolested in the Tokyo National Film Center archive in 2011, which was the most complete version of the film found to that point. So basically... By the 70s, while the Western world was becoming fed up with the gothic stylings and mannered horror and, and, and the gore was even like outdated by this point of, of Hammer's output and they'd moved on to more visceral, modern outings like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and The Exorcist, Japan was still indulging in films like Evil of Dracula where tall, good-looking men in red satin-lined capes were prancing around in the forest and draining the blood from virgins. Great stuff! So in the case of Evil of Dracula, this was still done in a modern setting. Although it's, uh, although it's set in Nagano, which is someplace far more rural than like a megalopolis like Tokyo or a cultural center like Tokyo, uh, Kyoto, excuse me. It's referred to as a barren northern wasteland in the movie, but uh, given how much more North Japan stretches, it's actually funny to think of Nagano as being rural. It's, it's kind of like it took place in Nebraska, as opposed to like deep Saskatchewan or something. But it's still, it's rural enough for this movie. And into this rural setting comes Professor Shiraki, who has been assigned to teach at a small all-girls school. And he's met by the principal, who we figure out, Tootsweet, is a straight-up vampire, along with his wife. And this movie wastes no time at all, uh, diving right into the battle between the two sides, as Shiraki realizes he's been brought there to become the principal, literally, as these vampires can steal your face off your body, which we see one of them do in an awesome scene of splattering blood and gore. But Evil of Dracula isn't that over-the-top bloody, really, or 
at least at least not by today's standards or even really the standards of the time. It's I mean, this was the era where some of the most stylized Chanbara films had 10 foot gouts of blood and brutal disembowelings and, and evil of Dracula only really has one or two scenes where the red stuff really flows, even though the vampire bites are small and just kind of trickle, you know. Uh, but it does have some very cool, very classic vampire makeups. Um, even though I have to admit, they regularly forget to whiten anywhere but the face. So many of the undead look like they just took a face plant in some pale foundation and they just called it a day. But the lighting is very effective and the pacing and momentum of the film is quite good too. Once we get going, it's quite energetic and it has a lot of chase scenes and surprisingly athletic fights, which is nice homage to Peter Cushing with some of this. And, and Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, they often had swashbuckling fight scenes between Van Helsing and Dracula, which I always unfortunately felt made Dracula look like a bit of a putz because he couldn't really handle one scrawny, somewhat sick-looking human. Uh, and the fights here are similar, with the vampire tossing our hero around but ultimately getting his ass handed to him. And the fight between the female lead and the, and the principal's vampire wife is the most embarrassing display of vampiric ineptitude I've ever seen. I mean, seriously, what bloodsucker, immortal, powerful, stronger than a human bloodsucker, gets deterred by having pillows thrown at them? Uh, but look, I had so much fun with the rest of this film, I didn't care. It gave me exactly what I was looking for, which was basically a hammer horror film set in Japan. The tone, the atmosphere, everything was there. And if it had some stumbles, I just shrugged and went with it because the overall runtime was so enjoyable. As a final added bonus, it was really cool to see some journeyman actors in all the main roles. For instance, Professor Shiraki and the principal were played by Toshio Kurosawa and Shin Kishida, respectively, both of whom were the male counterparts of Lady Snowblood, one in the original Lady Snowblood film and one in the sequel. Uh, Kishida was also in a few other classic genre films, including a couple of the Lone Wolf and Cub series, uh, Hanzo the Razor, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, and Zatoichi meets Yojimbo. And while Kurosawa is a strong presence and a great leading man, Kushida is a great Christopher Lee analog. He's imperious, he's sneering, and he can descend a staircase arrogantly with the best of them. And also, like Lee, once he goes full vampire, he hisses and he goes totally feral, and it's, it's a hoot to watch him go to all of these extremes, given how far we've come from these kinds of portrayals today. But there is a lot to like in Evil of Dracula, which I wish they'd have kept calling Bloodthirsty Rose, as that name is much more relevant to the plot and less obviously commercially based. It's a beautiful symbol in the film, the, the rose that is the color white, which symbolizes death in Japanese culture as opposed to black. It's turning blood red as the person who is pricked by it falls to the vampiric spell and dies. It's a cool visual in a movie with quite a few cool visuals. A movie that gave me exactly what I wanted. Hammer Horror Vampires in Japan. Definitely check out Evil of Dracula if you get the chance. Next up was uh, Indestructible Man. Oh boy. Holy shit. Indestructible Man is a bad movie. But unlike some of the other bad movies I've talked about here, its awfulness is actually quite charming and fun in an anachronistic sort of way. 
all of its 1950s-ish is more kind of glaringly obvious watching it now. And it's a fascinating study of what was passable even then. Uh, I mean, I'm sure when it came out, it was considered gritty and grimy and hard-boiled, at least by driving standards. And so much of its imagery and characterizations and style is almost cartoonishly specific to what we think of when we think of 1950s noir and sci-fi horror cliches. And this is dead in the middle of all of that in 1956. So Lon Chaney Jr. is Butcher Benton, a death row inmate and murderer who is double-crossed by his co-conspirators, including a slimy lawyer. His lawyer, which, you know, what are you doing having your co-conspirator be a lawyer? Come on. Uh, and then he ends up sucking down a healthy gulp of hydrogen cyanide in the gas chamber. But he's then resurrected and made invulnerable by an irresponsible scientist, of course, this is the 50s. And he breaks out to go on a legitimate rampage through California and ultimately across Los Angeles in search of vengeance against the crooks who betrayed him. Brought back, of course, by the power of electricity and certain chemicals. Because that's how science works. So Cheney does about seven sorts of different eye bag acting here. Uh, he loses his voice being resurrected for some reason. And so we spend most of the film being bombarded by this cliche dragnet like voiceover from charisma vacuum, Max Showalter as the detective on the case. And then up close shots of Lon Cheney's eyes emoting. <laughs> it's the best word I can come up with for it. So I'm not sure on a bit of another note here, I'm not sure how many of the double entendres in this film were intentional, but some of them are howlers, even by today's standards. So Showalter's detective is named Lieutenant Richard Chasen. And yes, he goes by Dick. So since he's a detective, he's Dick the Dick. Yeah. Uh, and in, uh, there was one scene I fell off my couch uh, in he, he invites this showgirl out on a date. She asks if they're going to dinner, and he says, well, it's not what I had in mind, but I suppose a hamburger will do. And when she says she can't just call him lieutenant if she's going to go on a date with him, and she says, do you have a first name? And he just goes, Dick. And she gets all Twitter-pated, and it's, well, it's a moment you can't prepare for. I, I had to pause the film to compose myself. It's... I've, I've never seen anything like it in a movie from this era. I don't know if I've ever seen anything like it in any film. It's, you can't tell if they're being serious or not. And either way, it's just, it's just wrong. But anyway, Indestructible Man is as B-movie cheeseball as you can get. Between the cornball dialogue, the ridiculous all-over-the-place plot, the face-palmingly stupid climax... And the howlingly bad ending scene, which I'm pretty sure set back women's rights by a good century, uh, this movie is watchable only as an exercise in laughing at a film, not with the film. The best thing that you can do, honestly, is probably just drink your way through it, which is apparently what Cheney did too, as he told the director that he couldn't make changes to the script or blocking after lunch, because by that time, Lon Cheney Jr. would be too drunk to learn new information. But uh, that being said, Cheney still makes a good impression in this film. His, 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 he got those craggy, saggy, hangdog features of his, and they fit perfectly with this monster of a man that he's playing. And at 6'2", he still looks like an absolute giant next to everyone else in the film. And frankly, this movie qualifies as horror 
thanks to him and his character. It's kind of a silly crime drama in every other way. But Cheney is a legitimately terrifying Frankensteinian monster, adjacent kind of creature thing. He tears through cops like paper as they ineffectively unload bullet after bullet into him after shotgun slug. And just the way he tosses people around is surprisingly savage. The idea of a hardened killer with no remorse, given the ability to be unstoppable, is actually done in a way that made me think of how terrifying that would be if done better than this. And it's a concept with legs and one that works in fits and starts here. Even though he's ultimately killed by the power of stupid, it is a cool, monstrous character and one I actually came to appreciate in an amused kind of way. And even though so much of the film is cliche and eye-rollingly, laughably terrible, there's a lot of aspects to it that make it very watchable today beyond its value as an object of derision. For instance, as a citizen of L.A. myself, I found the scenes of old 50s L.A. to be fascinating, including the incomprehensibly staged chase scene, I guess it was, up the Angels Flight Cable Railway over in Bunker Hill. And as a Blade Runner acolyte, I love the scene where Cheney ascends the Bradbury building to enter exactly into where J.F. Sebastian's apartment would be from that movie. Uh, and the scene where the crooked lawyer begs to be given police protection and then he just slugs the shit out of a cop after he's rejected, that scene is just amazing. So, the, look, the 50s were a hard decade for horror. There were some gems that snuck through, but man, so many horror films were refocused on nuclear fears and mad scientists and critters from under the sea and outer space. It's truly hard to find many that are worth a watch. Uh, the, the box office for horror movies was way down. On the other hand, sometimes you find ones that are just so bad that it turns all the way around and you chug a beer and munch popcorn and you laugh at how incredibly awful the proceedings are. That's, that, that's this right here. But at the end of the day, if the movie's entertaining you, even if it's at its own expense, is, is that really so bad? I mean, I honestly can't wait to watch this terrible, terrible movie again and to show it to other people, and we can all laugh at it together. I mean, MSTP3K, they covered it in season 11. I can't wait to watch their take on it. So Indestructible Man is a charming pile of steaming crap, and I fucking love it for it, because it's still a damn good time at the Schlock Drive-In Cinema. Coming up next, number 24, oh, caveat from 2021, over on Shudder. It is so rewarding. To find a movie like Caveat. It's, it's an Irish movie made for between 250 to 350,000 pounds that just reeks of talent for the genre and all because of confident directing and creative situations. It's written and directed by first-timer Damian McCarthy and it's shot in Cork County at this beautifully dilapidated country home and also using outdoor sets and it's truly astonishing in how evocatively creepy they are. Uh, caveat is best seen with as little knowledge of its contents as possible, as so much of the tension of the film comes from trying to figure out exactly what the actual fuck is going on and why. And the brilliance of Caveat is also in how it uses the simplest damn things to make you absolutely claw at your armrest 
in discomfort and unease. It's easily the most unsettling film I've seen this year, minute to minute, with more sleight of hand and brilliant tonal fakeouts than you can shake a stick at, not to mention a ton of things that are utterly mundane, but presented in a way that stands your hair on end. You've got dark nights and darker basements. You have these foxes calling off in the night, the, the rattle of a chain, a creepy painting that, that actually calls to mind uh, Albert Joseph Pennot's Batwoman, uh, the look in the glassy human eyes of a wind-up toy rabbit, and the way it drums like a dowsing rod whenever something unnatural is happening. Or is it? It's, it's all enough to set your teeth on edge as you try to determine exactly what the fuck is going on as the basic plot. Like I said, best to go into this not knowing anything, but it's basically about an amnesiac loser hired to babysit a schizophrenic woman in a beat-up old house on a deserted island with the caveat of the title referring to the fact that due to her illness, he must be locked in a big harness that restricts his movements in the house. And the hapless babysitter that's dropped into this impossibly creepy scenario is played by Jonathan French, who's hasn't really done a whole lot else, but his wide, innocent, uh, Bambi-like eyes, are they're perfect peering out behind his massive beard to portray and project onto us the uncertainty, the hesitancy, and the growing terror he experiences as the house and its occupant reveal their secrets and secrets from his own past start coming back as well. And that's really all you should know as caveat kicks off from there with arguably no scene for the remainder of the movie that is an exposition or a flashback that is leaving you any room to breathe it is almost oppressively spine tingling with the sets being almost too ominous and weird and the situations while mostly logical and and handled thoughtfully they often give the audience or at least me a solid feeling of oh hell no hell to the no it is the first time this year i've genuinely gotten a jump from a movie and it wasn't even a jump scare in the traditional sense but it wrecked me Full-on goosebumps. Props to any movie that can do that. And look, Caveat does stumble a bit upon reflection. The general premise, once it's all revealed, it kind of falls apart upon consideration and contemplation, logic. But I can't fault it too much as it's a film that's more about tone and moment-to-moment execution. And in that, it shines wonderfully it is as pure a fucking horror film as you get while having almost no blood and minimal cliche jump scares it's just an hour and a half of pure fucking tension and some insanely creepy stuff along with one of the most unique and creative narratives which is more so special because of how really simple it is i mean i could sum up the whole plot in two to four sentences by the time it's all done much like Other simple movies that use storytelling tricks to pad out their straightforward narratives like um, uh, Memento or or Buried or Gravity. It's it's incredible how much McCarthy squeezes, how much he wrings out of so little and how all the little details he's brought to the production fill out the space and they afford him so many ways to mess with the audience's minds and nerves. I was really impressed and pleasantly surprised by Caveat and despite its few flaws, Uh, which, I mean, God, I can forgive them at this budget level 
and this being a first-time film. I mean, that's that's two for two for new filmmakers from the UK horror scene this year, with uh, with Saint Maud being an exceptional Welsh film, if if completely different in tone and intention, uh, filmed by brand new director Rose Glass. Caveat is a far meaner, more traditionally scary film though, than than Saint Maud, and and the skills shown here in making my hair stand on end and my arms erupt in goosies makes me excited to see what McCarthy will get up to with a higher budget and more agency. So if you are looking for a quiet little horror flick to just get under your skin, definitely check out Caveat on Shudder. Up next, we have from 2005, I got in my folk horror film for the 2000s, Noroi, The Curse. And it's sort of like a spiritual cousin to Juon, The Grudge. Uh, Noroi the Curse, it's also about a lingering trauma which bubbles up and attacks people in the present. Only here, instead of ghostly cat-voiced kids hiding under your sheets, uh, we have an ancient rural demon whose psychic tentacles are reaching out to find new hosts and to just cause what seems like general havoc. And Noroi, also unlike Juon, is a found footage film. And thankfully for me, who doesn't usually like that style, it's actually a pretty good one. And the reason that Neroy succeeds more than it fails in this style is that, for the most part, it, it's effectively executed to be a documentary made by an actual documentarian who has a history of making documentaries about the paranormal. He comes across as more of a research journalist than a shock-seeking filmmaker, and the seriousness of its efforts makes the film seem more grounded and feel like it's in, in a wor- an existing world. Uh, he seems like a hardworking professional, and even though his film sometimes does exploit dramatic moments in ways that a documentary of this type believably would, it's not really until the very end that it seems to show that like it kind of becomes a little bit too much to be believable. Um, and unlike many films of this type, when something obviously supernatural happens on camera, or, or to the film or whatever, it's immediately called out and scrutinized. They're not acting like nothing happened, even though we all fucking saw it. And as a documentary, it uses footage gathered from multiple sources. And unlike many other films which have tried to do this, it's actually very believable here, capturing the feel of all its source materials like uh, game shows and talk shows and, and live events. It captures them all very accurately. And the wild shifts in tone in the first half of the movie as a result of this patchwork of footage is actually very entertaining. And as you're piecing things together, the way the documentary crew wants you to piece things together, it's, it's easy to stay invested in the plot as a result. It's not till things slow down and start to drag about halfway through that you start to want them to get somewhere. But everything is still done very even handily, so it never really truly gets boring. And the framing of the documentary as a found object which can be interpreted to the viewer's discretion is unfortunately the weakest aspect. Um, it, it, it goes far too obvious into crime scene lunacy at the very end of the film where you again have to throw your hands up and wonder why there wouldn't be a massive news story if something like this truly happened. But that's my personal inability to fully engage with found footage movies biasing me, I, I, I think, as the ending is actually, if you're just invested, it's a, it is truly a gut punch. And the way it goes straight out to black, no credits, nothing, is effectively harsh and appropriate given the presentation. I also had uh, mixed feelings about the often beloved movie Lake Mungo, which is similar 
in its documentary stylings, but but much quieter and less over the top, where Mungo settles for an ending that is mind-blowing for some and disappointing for others. Uh, Noroi goes straight for J-horror tropes that we've all seen, and that can be a double-edged sword. Uh, so Mungo relies on more of what I would call a, a what-really-happened narrative exploit, where even the digitally altered climax reveal is something that in your mind you debate if you saw what you saw. Uh, Neroy makes no such bones about its climax, and with the mediocre mid-2000s digital effects, it kind of undercuts what could have been a truly terrifying close to a great supernatural folk horror mystery. And, and actually, that's the best part of Neroy, really, and one of the reasons I watched it is that it reveals itself to be a folk horror film a, a good ways in. Uh, and it's about rural traditions in Japan which have been disrupted by the march of progress and how those ceremonies and beliefs are coming back to cause havoc in the society that unsettled them. And, and there's some great chilling stuff to do with knots and ceremonial bows and barking dogs and sickles hung over doorways and uh, dead pigeons. There's a couple of great possession scenes, a severely mentally disturbed psychic who is hard to watch in the best way, and a demented woman whose eyes and mannerisms scared me more than most other things in this film. Uh, but the feeling of a suppressed anger of customs being forgotten or disrespected or perhaps a, a guilt at not honoring the past is the underlying theme that bubbles up in this movie, kind of like the anger of a forgotten mountain spirit. And the horror here, more effective to me than the ending, is the feeling that time has passed and events have occurred that are beyond our day-to-day -day control. But those decisions made by the larger forces of our society have impacted others in ways we can't imagine or fathom. And as a result, there is a price to pay that we can't stop or appease or escape. There's a feeling of powerlessness, of hopelessness to the proceedings, and a feeling that many folk horror films share, a sense that it's, it's far, far too late, long before the events that occur in the film. And all we have to do is watch in the present as the unavoidable events happen and the bill comes due. Neroy is an incredibly solid effort of a film and one that I think holds up very strongly, even if I do think the end suffers too much bombast. Uh, but there's some bad found footage cliches and some unworthy effects. But, but as a story about a man trying to understand something incomprehensible, and as a story about that reveals it kind of reveals itself layer by layer, like an onion that gets more rotten the further in you peel, it's fantastic and definitely will stick in your mind after it's all over. And coming in at number 26, Prom Night 2, Hello Mary Lou from 1987. Of course, it's over on Shudder. Um, look, the most tragic thing about Prom Night 2, Hello Mary Lou, which was originally titled The Haunting of Hamilton High, is that it has never been released in a format befitting its status as a cult classic. If you're willing to spend a pretty penny, you can drop a cool 50 bucks on Amazon to get the best version of the film and the only widescreen version available on 480p DVD. <laughs> I mean, this version is also available on eBay for less, though it's used usually in, of speculative quality. The version that is streaming is an old transfer. It's 4.3, it's a square, it's pan and scan, and it's, it's awful in terms of both resolution and film quality. Lots of video errors and glitches. And while it's also tragic that this film, which 
has nothing whatsoever to do with the 1980 Jamie Lee Curtis slasher film aside from, you know, a prom. The only thing, the, it's named Prom Night 2 just for the purpose of franchise recognition. And the fact that it hasn't been properly re- released for the modern age is probably the most egregious thing about it. Look, let's be clear. It is not a great film. <laughs> it's very typical of the 80s horror output with some questionable script and acting. The, the pinnacle of 80s hair and uh, quote-unquote fashion. Some ludicrous and face-palming scenarios with goofy but creative deaths. And absolutely no logic or reasoning behind the central premise. But I'll be damned if it doesn't have a lot of charm. There's some surprisingly quality aspects in the middle of a lot of nonsense. And the gusto to blatantly rip off and reference far better horror films with a wink and a don't give a fuck attitude. Uh, It also has Michael Ironside, uh, so badass he can knock you clean out with a single sneaker. And he plays a guilt-plagued principal who accidentally killed his promiscuous and heartless prom date as she was being crowned prom queen back in the 50s and who now has to deal with her raging ghost as she comes back 30 years later and wants to get her damn crown, even if she has to possess or kill the entire school to do it. Why 30 years? I don't know. (laughs) So look, I'll watch Michael Ironside eat Wheaties for two hours, so... You know his presence here immediately makes me more interested. He doesn't really get to do too much iron-sidey scenery chewing, but we get a smile from him right near the end of the movie that made the wait worth it. Uh, So his deceased date, the eponymous Mary Lou herself, is trying to reincarnate herself in the body of a pure-hearted, innocent young Vicky Carpenter who goes from crimp-haired sweetheart to gum-smacking, 50s-slang-spouting, friend-killing nympho-psychopath as Mary Lou gets into her head. Wendy Lyon, mostly known for her TV work, including Anne of Green Gables and Sailor Moon, of all things, is actually quite good as Vicky. She's faking her out, she's faking us out at first with her almost soporific niceness before flipping the script and showing her range with a wonderfully snarky and sassy turn as Mary Lou. And you know what's funny? It's it's kind of hard not to root for Mary Lou, actually. Considering her death is kind of bullshit, and her only sin was not being very nice in how she breaks up with a young Michael Ironside who's kind of a doof, and apparently really liking to get laid. Uh, so Vicky and her friend group aren't exactly the most likable bunch, but because they're most they're mostly bland and vanilla, not because they do anything particularly bad, but you know, like with many slashers of the era, you do find yourself rooting for the killer after a while. And Mary Lou is no exception, becoming like a wise-cracking Freddy krueger carry hybrid before it's all said and done. So this movie has a lot of, um, well, we'll call them homages during its runtime. Uh, as I said, it just, it rips off other movies of the time. But it definitely wears its horror-loving roots on its sleeve. And aside from a couple of uh, copious, actually, Exorcist references and the obvious parallels between Carrie and Nightmare on Elm Street, Many of the characters have famous names. Vicki Carpenter, uh, Kelly Henenlotter, Monica Waters, uh, Jess Browning, Mr. Craven, Mr. King, Mr. O'Bannon, and of course, there's a guy called Eddie Wood. It's cute. It's not obtrusive, and it actually makes it clear to us that we're watching a horror movie that doesn't take itself too seriously, but that was made by people who have a passion for the genre. It also becomes... Uh, it also it actually has become actually in recent years a bit of a queer touchstone uh, from what I understand with with tongue firmly in cheek. Uh, Mary Lou's quest to get her fucking prom crown 
and just what a fabulous and bitchy queen she is has sparked a subculture fandom which idolizes her, not unlike Jennifer Tilly or, ironically, in the case of the Babadook, who is my favorite accidental gay icon. (laughs) Um, The the gusto that Wendy Lyon and Lisa Schrage play Marie Lou with uh, is definitely wicked fun. Marie Lou? Mary Lou. It's wicked fun, and you can see where the attraction lies. Prom Night also has... Prom Night 2 specifically, also has a couple of scenes with, with decent special effects, and that's thanks to Nightmare on Elm Street special effects consultant Jim Doyle, who puts together a, a few pretty neat moments, including a chalkboard that swallows someone up like a, a weird swimming pool, complete with swirling letters that stay on the board after it's all done. Also, the Tutti Fruity kill is simple, sudden, and hilarious. You'll know it when you see it. The only trick I think they missed is Mary Lou plunging her hand into someone's chest and pulling out their still-beating heart like Mola Ram from Temple of Doom. And, and while they're mumbling, she could go, Hello, Mary Lou. Goodbye, heart. But then again, I'm a goddamn cheeseball who's watched way too many late-era Freddy Krueger movies, so maybe don't listen to me on that one. So, uh, <clears throat> anyway, don't go into prom night two, Hello, Mary Lou. Expecting the next... I love saying that. Prom night two, Hello, Mary Lou. Don't go into it expecting the next absolute stone-cold classic that everyone missed, but you can go in expecting a bit of a hidden gem and one that deserves a reassessment and a resurgence, so long as you're a fan or supporter of the subgenre. It is very much a cheesy 80s supernatural slasher, but in all the good ways. And there's a lot here for acolytes of that style to giggle and snicker at and enjoy for what it is. And hopefully, if enough of us make enough noise about it, they'll finally release a proper version of it so that we can enjoy Mary Lou getting her damn prom queen crown looking her best. Hmm. So up next, uh, let's see, number 27 we're at. Hellbender from 2021 over over on Shudder, naturally. Uh, This is going to be my folk horror film from the 2020s. Um, Hellbender is not wildly original although it's often very novel in its approach to the commonly tread ground it walks. It is not mind-blowing in terms of visuals either, uh, special effects or any of that, although the cinematography is really lush and beautiful. The, the atmosphere is lovely and alternates between dark and foreboding and surprisingly bright and clear and vibrant. And its technical flaws, mostly to do with early aughts-level digital effects detracting from the story, can, they can be chalked up to its micro-budget level production, which I argue could have done more in-camera to minimize the necessity for wonky post-production effects or perhaps showing less at key moments would have left more to the imagination, which might have improved the end product. But what Hellbender is, despite all of this, I'm getting that out of the way in, at first, what it is is a miracle of minimalism and doing a lot with very little. Hellbender was made by the Adams family. 1D, no thing. Uh, and the Adamses are a mother and father, Toby Poser and John, John Adams, respectively, and their two daughters, Lulu and Zelda. So during the pandemic, they decided to make a film based on their musical project of the same name, Hellbender, and came up with the premise of a mother and daughter living deep in the woods, away from modern society, where they hang out, they hike, and they play in a little band that Sounds like two people stuck in the woods with nothing to do, but listen to the White Stripes and Veruca Salt on mushrooms. Uh, 
the Adamses shot this at their gorgeous house in the Catskills. And much of the surrounding sumptuous nature fills this movie with a feeling of being truly out in the capital W wilderness. And the premise, as I said, is pretty basic. The mother is kind of a witch, uh, a, a kind of a witch. She's kind of a witch, but she's also a kind of a witch. It's called a hellbender, naturally. And she is trying to keep her teenage daughter from falling into the darker aspects of her nature as she matures into a young woman. So if it sounds like a traditional coming-of-age story, it kind of is, with a nice twist to do with the nature of hellbenders coming in late in the film and a sense that as it goes on, that something deeper and darker is happening. And the film works very well in defining its world and its basic but logical lore. And although it's quiet and it feels longer than its 86-minute runtime, it does feel like it's worth the journey once you get to the end. I was worried it was becoming too much of an exploration of matriarchal tribulations to be a proper horror film. Uh, not that there's nothing wrong about that. It just didn't feel like it was a horror film for most of its runtime. It felt like it was exploring those aspects of it. But it manages to be a strong version of both. Uh, uh, by the end of the movie. And it's and, and the best part is, is that everyone's a surprisingly good actor, especially given that at any time, any one of them was filming or operating a drone or serving as lighting, sound, etc. Uh, it's, it's truly a remarkable project when it's put in the context of the nature of its creation. It's fine to good in and of itself if you just watch it not, know, not knowing this at all. But I had... Far more respect for it once I found out just how small the team was that made it and how creative this small family unit must have been to have put all of this together just because they were stuck at home and wanted something to do. So I mean, apparently many of the scenes were improvised and lots of the shots made just because they saw something cool and thought, let's shoot something there. It brings a feeling of lived-inness to the movie and it's actually a fun juxtaposition to see a modern witch living in a home that isn't dilapidated and worn down, but is very modern and looks like the kind of place you'd want to rent on Verbo. And the way that they play with the nature of witchery and the new concepts they bring ends up being fun, if not totally well-realized due to their effects constraints. But again, you have to give them the benefit of the doubt when they're working with so little and obviously trying to show things above their budgetary or technical ability. They still pull off so much incredibly well. And as I said, the richness and lushness of the nature around them gives such a huge boost to the overall atmosphere that it sets the proceedings in an appropriately epic environment. Because this is a great example of a modern folk horror revival type film. The young girl finding out about the dark secrets of nature, including her own nature, while surrounded by one of the best-looking examples of all-caps nature I've seen this year. It's a classic example of landscape inspiring much of the emotion in the film, while in the background, another classic trope of folk horror plays out, that being the intersectionality between feminist or women's issues and the exploration of witchcraft as possibly female empowerment. And here... It's less to do with women versus society as much as women versus other women, which is wonderfully tweaked on the nose by the first song we see the mother-daughter mother -daughter duo performing in their little practice space where they repeat the phrase, women cut women, over and over and over again. Uh, exploring the ways the present can eat the past 
or that the new generation supplants the old despite the best intentions of the latter is not delicately done here, but it's effectively done. And it's clear enough while not being too pat or pretentious. There's a lovely balance to Hell, Hellbender, and I, I recommend it highly as long as you can live with some wonky effects and a bit of a slower pace. It's certainly worth a look as a shining example of what a very small group of people can do with very little money, a lot of free time, and a shit ton of creativity and talent. And also, a serious love for eating some weird shit. <laughs> You'll see what I mean. Check out Hellbender for sure. The next movie, number 28, Count Yorga, Vampire, from 1970 uh, on Blu-ray. Got a nice Blu-ray set of that this year, also from Arrow Video. So, Count Dracula is not the only Eastern European film vampire with the rank of Count to grace the silver screen in the heyday of gothic horror cinema. Although, his name certainly does dominate anything to do with vampires. See my review of the evil of Dracula a few minutes ago where there was nothing to do with Dracula, but they had vampires in it. So instead of calling it the much more relevant bloodthirsty Rose, they had to shoo in Dracula somehow. So people would go, Oh, vampires. Uh. So, uh, excuse me, <laughs> another film vampire that was, well, just to be honest, it was just Dracula with a name that didn't bring up licensing issues. The eponymous count Yorga of the title of this film, the lovers of count Yorga or just count Yorga vampire. Definitely aping the mannerisms of Christopher Lee and Bela Lugosi before him, Count Yorga is an effete, arrogant, strictly cultured aristocrat who moonlights as a horrifying, monstrous vampire. And the juxtaposition of the two states of the character is beautifully played here by the impeccable Robert Quarry, who gives us one of the greatest performances of this type in film history. It is not easy to play ancient, impossibly powerful, and cruel and also smarter than everyone in the room. But Quarry pulls it off in a way that reminds me of, almost strangely enough, the more subdued moments of Bill Nye in Underworld, of all things. But Quarry did it first, and while Christopher Lee's Dracula always felt icy and detached, and Bella smiled too much for me, uh, Quarry gives this beautiful balance of sinister wit, gentlemanly charm, and pure fucking evil in his portrayal, and he is the single greatest reason to watch this film. Aside from him, it's a pretty basic horror film with some massive holes in logic, some surprisingly good dialogue and acting, and a touch of genuinely funny and unforced humor. Uh, a focus puller who must have been blind, and, and there's one other major, major issue. Um, it's been commonly said that a genius character could only be as smart as the writer of that character. For example, if a Bond villain's master plan seems too simplistic or undercooked, then that's the fault of Ian Fleming's imagination, and it undermines the believability and threat of the character. One major flaw I always hated about the original film version of Dracula is how easily his plan, if you, if you could even call it that, was unraveled and undone by a bumbling nitwick and a, and a creaky, creaky old doctor. Uh, Christopher Lee's Dracula was often overpowered by the simplest damn things, and he got taken out like a bitch more than a few times. The evil of Dracula just talked about how awful the final vampire fight was in that. And that's just, that's just bad writing and poor plotting. There's no reason where there couldn't be a much more epic encounter, especially when you consider the way that an ancient vampire can be portrayed as impossibly smart and canny. And in Count Yorga, 
It's remarked upon that the only way a vampire can live to be his age is by being intelligent and cunning and by being smarter than any normal human. And yet, in this film, even though he seems to be ahead of the characters most of the time, he's aware of their comings and goings, anticipating their actions, in the grander scheme of things, his plans are remarkably shallow and silly. He's basically just trying to get a bunch of chicks to be vampires with him, but instead of doing this in any kind of subtle or smart way, it's, it's like he tags a deer for study, releases it back out into the wild, and then is and like and then is following it to hunt it and kill it or whatever, and then he's just forced to deal with a bunch of angry bucks who know he did it. Why not just keep the deer and shoot the bucks at whatever and then skin it whatever you want to do? It's bizarre. It's it's more than a little silly and it's illogical if you think about it. He puts himself in danger many times in the film, and I suppose you know. Your headcanon could be that he wants the excitement because he's bored, but that's never explicitly said. Um, the climax, the, I'm, I'm going to spoil it. The climax in a, in a tiny bedroom where his big play is to sacrifice one of his vampire brides because he let himself get trapped and then to jump the dude uh, who has a stake in his hands right outside the doorway, it just screams writer who wrote himself into a corner. It's a pathetic scene that undermines the performance and the cool factor of the character as he's been played up to that point. It's disappointing, but then again, it's just not uncommon in these kinds of film. It's just that this one felt so different up until that point, and Yorga was such an awesome vampire that it, it got my hopes up. And it's not to say it's a terrible movie. It's not. There's a lot to like here, as I said, although there's a lot of flaws for sure as well. There's some random, unfinished side plots, some completely useless characters, one or two leaps in believability that strain even the more elastic abilities of this B-movie, and of course, that pesky ending. Uh, but, but damn, if Yorga isn't a sexy vampire movie, and that's done with almost no nudity whatsoever, although quite a bit is implied, uh, Yorga himself is definitely a seething ball of hunky man love with one scene where he is munching on a woman's neck, being hotter than the actual sex scene that's in the film. Although that's what happens when you place the sex scene in a freaking candlelit Volkswagen bus. But anyway, he's definitely got a regal passion to him. And I can see how, as opposed to Lee or Lugosi, he would sweep a woman off her feet with his debonair charm and smoldering looks. If you, if you can't tell, I, I've said it already, Yorga, as played by Quarry, is the movie to me. Everything else around him is secondary and of varying degrees of quality. Uh, Roger Perry, as an eccentric blood doctor, is a hoot and a standout. And Michael Murphy, who plays one of Yorga's victims, doofus boyfriends, is also good, which explains why he went on to have a pretty strong career playing that guy whose face you know and everything but don't know his name. But if you need to get your fix of badass vampirishness, you can't do much better than this. Count Yorga is the movie, no matter what else is going on. I was entertained throughout the entire runtime, even the times I rolled my eyes. And even though this count ultimately goes out like a punk, it's all good because, hey, there's a sequel. More Count Yorga. Great. So up next, number 29, Apostle from 2018. You can find it over on Netflix. So Apostle has a hell of a pedigree. It's directed and written by Gareth Edwards, who is most famous for making The Raid and The Raid 2, two of the most stunning and brutal action films of the last 20 years, 
with some of the most brilliant action cinematography and stunt work you've ever seen. An apostle is a departure from what he's known for and a step into a subgenre that we've been talking about a lot this year and one that seems to be a very common one these days, and that's folk horror. This is my 2010's folk horror movie. An apostle stars, among others, Dan Stevens and Michael Sheen. And the second that those two names popped up on screen, I was at rapt attention. Dan Stevens, who plays protagonist Thomas Richardson, has been quietly bouncing around doing great work for a while. And while you may not have seen him as the Beast and the Prince in the live-action Beauty and the Beast, you should see him, go stops, go see him, in the amazing and bizarre Marvel-adjacent show Legion, which is about a psychic and a very powerful and very insane mutant in the X-Men world. Uh, please go check out Legion. He's awesome in it. It's a great show. Uh, and Michael Sheen should need little introduction, and yet I feel he does. He's one of the most forceful and potent act actors of a generation, and yet is wildly overlooked and undervalued in general because he largely takes chameleonic but memorable roles that stick in people's minds because of how deeply he sinks himself into them. He's the guy who you don't remember his face, but you remember his roles. Uh, Lucian, the werewolf leader in Underworld. David Frost in Frost-Nixon, uh, Tony Blair in The Special Relationship. Uh, he was the leader of the Volturi in the Twilight movies and Castor, the flamboyant nightclub owner in Tron Legacy. He was the impossibly assholish William Masters on Masters of Sex, and he even returned to the role for an episode of The Simpsons. Uh, he's played Romeo, Mozart, and Salieri, Constantine, uh, Henry V, and he was the young Vic's Hamlet for two years. And of course, in a role that no one saw coming, he was the effete, overly-mannered Aziraphale in his Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett's fabulous Good Omens TV series. And he also gives the most gut-punch performance of Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night that you'll ever see. If you don't believe me, go Google it and come back with tears in your eyes. I'll wait. But... All of this to say that you have a solid director and a solid cast and also a solid idea. So a broken, disturbed man is told, by his is told that his sister is being held for his family's ransom on an isolated Welsh isle by a cult run by a couple of escaped convicts. He passes as a pilgrim, joining the cult, and infiltrates the island only to discover that they may, in fact, have an actual connection to a higher power that is fed by sinister means. That's a, that's a cool premise. That's Lovecraft meets Wicker Man. And for most of the runtime, it's very effective and exciting. The film is shot very moodily and with fantastic period clothes and settings, creates an atmosphere of, of, of this earnest yearning while being surrounded by a gnawing darkness. This is, amongst other things, fingernail acting, where the copious and ever-present dirt under the nails of the actors speaks to the conditions that their characters are living in. Their skin is blotchy and mottled with no attempt to hide natural blemishes. Hair is greasy and unkempt, and clothes are often spotted with mud. Everything feels lived in, and you certainly can't fault the movie from a production values standpoint. Nor can you fault the dialogue in general, which is, which is very period, and it's well-spoken by a whole cast of fine actors, the most famous of whom are the ones I cherry-picked, but they're all, everyone acts superbly no matter what they're given to speak. And the script is, by and large, quite fine. And 
the setting, the remote island and the feeling of isolation, oppression, and paranoia is extremely well told, especially in the first half, as our protagonist, Thomas, figures out what the hell is going on with the island. This involves some lying, some furtive sneaking, some sacrificing of innocence, and some deep claustrophobic baths in underground caves filled with blood and refuse. And of course, some goo-goo eyes at the hot daughter of the island's chief prophet, played by Mr. Sheen. So, so the fascinating choice this movie makes is to not make sim- things simply about Richardson's search for his sister or about Sheen's character Malcolm Howe being a megalomaniac. Things are more nuanced, with Tommy's violent history affecting his present and the politics and subplots of the island's inhabitants getting a healthy bit of screen time. There's a, a build to a major character turn that you just don't see coming, although the movie makes it clear from the beginning if you pay attention. But here is where the movie sadly falters. I was loving, loving this movie for most of its runtime. It hit all my happy places of good acting and sumptuous production and cool moments like the one where Thomas saves Malcolm from an assassin. But then, somewhere in the third act, it lost its way. And I, I had to contemplate what exactly went wrong. And I still don't know if I've put my finger on it exactly. I think I'd have to go into deep spoiler territory to get the meat of it, but I certainly know that despite there being nothing too major or specific, I left the film afterwards feeling unsettled, unsatisfied. What was it? Was it that it got a little too obvious and rote with how some of the arcs played out? Was it the, the lack of a sense of lore that had defined rules or that it felt like they were making it up as they went for the sole sake of cool visuals? Uh, was it that the island's secrets, once they were fully uncovered, were a little on the nose and a bit goofy? Maybe the boringly plain love interest story. Maybe the fact that, like in many action movies, the characters take a hideous amount of punishment but are only weakened when, it's, when it suits the story and not when they need to sprint around doing things. Uh, was it the classic evil bad guy fully monologuing his evil plan? Was it Stevens, who I love as an actor, emoting through his eyebrows, a thing he's done to great effect and through his entire career, but here he does it at what should be the movie's climactic emotional point, and he does it so hard that he goes straight fucking cross-eyed and says the most howlingly stilted lines ever, and even his fine acting can't save him. The, the script finally fell apart in that moment. I and mean, was it the ending, which is at once open-ended and also cheesily obvious? I don't know, because while all of these things are true, none of them really were so egregious that they ruined the movie either. It's an unfortunate case of someone making a fine hamburger, but the lettuce was a little old or had a brown spot on it. The, the tomato wasn't cold. It was a little warm and mushy. The bun wasn't quite the right texture. It's still a fine burger. It's just not quite there. And now I'm hungry. Anyway, but I, I wanted to preface with all the good things about the film because that's how the movie felt. It's a, it's a good movie. It's just not a great one. And its flaws are frustrating because they were so close. Even the way that people compare this movie to Wicker Man frustrates me because one thing this movie also fails at is providing us a sense of why these people stay and believe. In Wicker Man, 
Christopher Lee hides the fact that the crops are failing from the populace. They're innocently believing that their pagan rituals are helping. You can tell that Sheen is trying to hide the dark side of the island's nature from his flock. But then at the end, we see that they kind of know a lot of the most more sort of details. And, and if they do, and the crops are that bad, and babies are being born malformed so often, why do they still believe? You're telling us they don't know, but then they do know. Eh. And one theme of the movie is finding and holding on to faith. And, and, it's, and it's hard to believe, given what we're shown, that the people on the island would keep faith with their leader, given the circumstances. Maybe they're all just that at, at that, the, at, they're at the end of the, their rope in life. They're that far gone, but it still seems implausible. And that goes for the main character, Thomas, as well, who is established, it's established early on, has lost his faith. And they show it actually partway through in a horrific way in the Boxer Rebellion of Peking. But then he finds it again by the end of the movie in not entirely a convincing way. And it's a whiplash effect for something that is seemingly so fundamental. And I have to ask, what kind of faith is one that you can so easily give up and so easily regain? It's a hollow faith, especially when there is something concrete in this film to believe in. And maybe I may have missed a deeper meaning. And as I said, I'm, I'm still contemplating the ending, which may be saying something about faith within oneself. But if, that's, if it is, and that's what it's about, then it's saying it too clumsily. I don't know. Ultimately, Apostle is a very good film with some severe third act issues and a ringing hollowness that is hard to look past. And hollow films are like hollow faith. They're only worth anything until something better comes along. So, but that was my folk horror film for the tens. And that means I've got all my folk horror films. I can have fun for the last two films of this year. And so I started off with number 30, Terrifier 2. That's right. It's in theaters right now. It just came out getting a lot of buzz because people are vomiting and passing out in the theater, allegedly. Nice, uh, very... Very nice marketing effect, that. Uh, but I can see why. If they are, after watching the movie, I get it. So when I reviewed the first Terrifier movie, I did so in the first season of this podcast. And <laughs> I don't recall being very favorable. And I think this was back before I kept notes to speak from, so I don't really know what I said. <laughs> I, and I don't like listening to my old shows, but I'm pretty sure I crapped on it for having no real plot, being excessively mean-spirited, and essentially just being violence porn. And in, in addition, if I didn't say this then, then I definitely want to say this now, that the character of Art the Clown in the first Terrifier was both fun and utterly boring. I know that in, in slasher films, the bad guy is functionally immortal and always comes back from the dead, etc., etc., but there's usually a reason for it, or else they make their resurrections seem implausible. Michael Myers is a great example of how you have to be careful with how much damage you allow a villain to take before it becomes ridiculous. Because Michael works best when he's just a man. A very bullet-resistant man, but a man. As it's scarier to know that his evil could spring from any of us. Uh, Freddy is on the other end of the spectrum, out there with Chucky and Pinhead. They're pretty much immortal, as you can always write a reason that they come back, as they live more in pure fantasy land, and you can make up new rules as you go. But in Terrifier 1, Art was never defined. He was just 
an immortal, impossibly strong clown who wanted to kill anyone who crossed his path just because. And it was like he had turned God mode on in a video game. He could essentially do whatever he wanted, and none of the victims stood a chance. So no matter how entertaining he was while he was stalking and killing people, there was just no tension or build, and it was just passing time between horrifically gory kills and set pieces. And that was a major criticism of the film, and not just from me. And to the credit of series creator and mastermind Damian Leone, he took these criticisms, and by God, he fixed them for Terrifier 2. I have to admit, full disclosure, that I was not looking forward to watching this this year. And I actually questioned if I should watch it. And I'm so, so very happy to say that I had a blast watching it. I am fully converted to the cult of Art the Clown. And Terrifier 2 is one of the most fun times I've had at the horror cinema all year. And that's, to be clear, that is not to say it is for everyone, though. It is. Terrifier 2 is also, on top of all those things, one of the most brutally, unapologetically violent films I've seen in recent memory. And there are several scenes where the violence is absolutely the point. It's a movie to watch in rowdy theaters or with a big group of friends so you can all scream and swear and puke or whatever else this movie makes you do together. And unlike the first one, Terrifier 2 actually has characters that have relationships beyond the basic. And as a result, when the violence does happen, it actually feels more visceral. Whereas in the first one, at a certain point, you just became numb. And and Leone is doing world building in this movie, and it was sorely needed. It's amazing the difference having some possible explanation for art's motives and existence does in creating investment. And in addition to having characters that live in that world feeling like more fleshed out entities makes us care more when they're in peril even though we know how unstoppable art is there are many comparisons to slasher hero villains of the past to be made but art has evolved wonderfully to be like uh, a mute freddy krueger or a supernatural x-rated joker from batman if he just gave up on crime and went full psycho in that he's very very funny and entertaining with how he stalks and kills people and he's relentless at doing so He's also insanely, terrifyingly brutal. And with some of the kills in this movie going to violent, vicious extremes that I have not seen outside of, like, guinea pig movies or the other similar forms of splatter or gore porn. Um, And and look, there's definitely an art form to the graphic depiction of the destruction of a human body. Uh, And Terrifier 2 has some of the best, most creative and realistic maiming and killing effects I've seen since Robert Greenhall's incredible work in Chrome Skull laid to rest too, which was essentially an advertisement for his effects house, Post Human Effects. And on a sad note, RIP to Mr. Hall, who passed away last year, far, far too young. But in addition to the incredibly gruesome deaths, some of which are, like the first film, wildly mean-spirited and very cruel, is the character of Art the Clown being, well, a clown. And the fact that he's totally mute and communicates everything through mime is a fantastic choice, as it was in the first movie. And and it worked out well in the first movie, but it's on another level here. Uh, David Howard Thornton, who plays Art, he strikes a great balance between goofy and utterly fucking terrifying with his performance. And it's like what you'd get if Charlie Chaplin played, well, the Joker. But, you know, it's not the wussified TV and movie version, but the Jason Todd killing Barbara Gordon shooting death of the death of the family version, the the scary, chaotic, evil version of the Joker. 
There's a lot of um, informed physical comedy here. Uh, very, very Charlie Chaplin. And while it doesn't totally distract from the horrible shit that art does, it does elevate a lot of the more abominable moments into cartoonishness, which helps make the insane splatter more palatable, relatively speaking, that is. Um, in Peter Jackson's Brain Dead, a lot of the characters and their physical destruction was so over the top and silly that you almost didn't notice how fucking disgusting it all was. Uh, smashing the girl's head into a light fixture and having her whole face light up, for example, um, was more funny than anything else. Or the zombie who had a, a garden gnome stuck in his open neck hole and he ran around with a garden gnome head for the rest of the movie. Uh, these are all funny things. Terrifier's effects are much more visceral and real than that. Uh, and that's partly due to the decades of technology and practical effects improvements and building off of what's come before. And the death scenes and aftermaths are shot more viciously and aggressively. So it's, it's much more in your face and grisly. And as I said, there's a lot more cruelty with many of Art's victims being alive long after you'd hoped they were dead. So while it is cartoonish, it's not as cartoonish as it could be or arguably should be. And if this sounds like it veers into torture porn territory, it sort of does. But whereas torture porn tends to linger and be about the buildup and execution of pain, Art, when he pounces, is fast and ferocious, which in the context of the film makes it closer to brain dead than, say, to Saw 3. And also, the fact that the movie veers hard into fantasy territory helps distance itself a little bit more from reality. Even if it's only a tiny little bit, it does help it make it all a little bit more palatable. Um, Leone has even said that he had scenarios where the violence went even further, but even that he has lines he will not cross. So given what we do see, that's impressive and more than a little disturbing. Uh, watching Terrifier 2 is, for most, I'd imagine, an exercise in how much violence you can stomach, much like the first Terrifier. But as I've been saying, the kills as well as the surrounding trappings are executed much better here. And as a result, you'll likely find yourself gasping deep into the third act as the savagery doesn't really grow stale like in the first one. But ironically, in its attempt to add more story to counterbalance the sadism, Terrifier 2 happens to go perhaps too far in the other direction. The movie is two hours and 20 minutes long. Two hours 20! That is the longest movie I've watched this year and far Far too long for a horror film, especially a slasher. Right off the bat, I can think of five to seven different scenes that you could have cut chunks out of and brought the film down a good 20 minutes, and no one would have noticed the difference except for Leone, who also edited his own film. And while I mentioned that he was doing world and character building, he kind of goes overboard with far too long of dream sequences, family squabbles that end up dragging on and becoming shrill, and dialogue scenes with incidental characters that are unnecessary or, or overly drawn out. It's just, a, a, by a little bit in each one, though, something a, a more seasoned editor could fix, but it's, it's similar to what happened with Robert Rodriguez's Machete, which was a great hour and 45-minute movie, which unfortunately got drawn out to nearly two and a half fucking hours. But uh, Terrifier 2 is arguably a much more entertaining ride than Machete, even though I will say that that film does have some top-tier moments. Uh, the characters we do get here are nothing too original, but by and large are played very well. 
with some occasionally janky dialogue, but overall acceptable for this kind of film. Particularly standing out is final girl Sienna Shaw, a girl who falls asleep to House on Haunted Hill, just like me, played by Lauren Lavera, who has an incredible range and connection to her dramatic scenes that is only outshone by her transformation from Xanax-popping nervous wreck to full-on, literal, badass warrior princess. The fact that Terrifier had the gumption to dress its main girl in a skimpy cosplay armor bikini, complete with angel wings, to literally have her mother talk about how revealing the costume is and have her explain this is how Halloween is now, and then have her run around in it, covered in blood for half the movie, and pay it off at the end in the most satisfying scene in this series' short history is nothing short of a miracle. Not to mention the fact that her transformation at the end could have fallen flat as roadkill if they had done it wrong, but they managed to pull it off with a playful 80s-inspired style that just brings too much goodwill to be mad at. And that style of the movie helps all the proceedings. Back from the first film is the grindhouse look of the film with its crushed contrast, heavy film grain. But here it's also offset by this gorgeous 80s color palette and a synthwave soundtrack. Again, elements from the first movie done better and more successfully here. And it's the glue that keeps a lot of the other sometimes anachronistic elements stuck together. Uh, sometimes using the trappings of the past and the present can be the way to the future. And where Halloween ends tried to update or make a modern take on slasher tropes but failed, Terrifier 2 succeeds on every level and in my mind is the best slasher film that I can recall, at least certainly the last decade. It is hilariously funny at times, especially if you have a very dark sense of humor. But even if you don't, you'll find yourself laughing a lot. It's got more than enough gore to satisfy your gorehound friends and so much, I'd argue most audiences will watch this the way my generation watched Jason and Freddy Kills, through their fingers, as it should be. And also, most importantly, it's actually fucking scary. There is a little girl in this movie, and I'll just say this, if she doesn't give you at least a little bit of the willies, then you are dead inside. She's creepy. And if you needed one more thing to check out, there's a mid credit scene with wrestling legend Chris Jericho that has some incredible practical effects and a fabulous tribute to Cronenberg's The Brood. All in all, Terrifier 2 did the one thing I did not expect it to do. It made me like it. I admit, I was not on board with the first one, but with some much-needed upgrades, the second film has made me a convert. And I came into this not wanting to like it. And it seems that Leone knows that the criticisms coming to this film are valid too, as he's already stated he's likely going to split Terrifier 3 into two movies, as he says he doesn't want to do another two-plus-hour movie. I mean, if there's one thing that makes me believe that Art the Clown is the future of horror, as many people are saying that he is, it's that Leone is aware. He's open to change. He's a fan of the genre. He's talented enough to surprise and convert even jaded old heads like me. And most importantly, he doesn't take any of this too seriously. And I think that's where the fun comes from. At the end of the day, Terrifier 2 is a fun fucking movie. That is, if you can keep your lunch down while you're watching it. And finally, the last movie of 2022 for Horror Palooza, Bloody Muscle Bodybuilder in Hell from 1995. With a title like that, you know it has to be good. Uh, originally dubbed The Japanese Evil Dead, Shinichi Fukuzawa's long gestating homage to the Sam Raimi classic is about as pure a love letter as you are going to find. And even though it is the microest 
of micro budgets. And with a period of filming longer than even Peter Jackson's bad taste, you can feel the love for the kind of frenetic cinematic energy that Raimi made famous plastered all over this 8mm lost classic. Uh, and yes, I did just say 8mm. Evil Dead, by comparison, was shot with $350,000 in 1980 money with a 16mm, whereas Bloody Muscle Bodybuilder, set five times fast, was shot for far, far less than that on an 8mm in 1995 and not fully completed until 2017. Although copies of the unfinished version got out as long ago as the late 90s. Um, I, I was, it was some of a, uh, back in the day, <coughs> back in my day, uh, it was somewhat of an apocryphal legend amongst horror video traders in the 90s and early 2000s. And you'd often hear about it from these crusty video rental store guys, if you happen to try to check out like Tetsuo Iron Man or any early Mike film like Dead or Alive or Visitor Q, oh, Visitor Q, oof. It finally got a full Blu-ray release this year thanks to Wild Eye Releasing and the Visual Vengeance imprint, which specializes in shot-on-video lo-fi horror. So that's where I picked it up. And Bloody Muscle Bodybuilder is as lo-fi as you get. This film is grainy as hell, even with the proper transfer on Blu-ray. We're talking big, fat 8mm grains, too. The kind that are on, a, on my 4K screen look absolutely atrocious, especially in the darker scenes or one with any kind of color effects. The film looks a mess. But even through the muddled graininess, you can't help but admire some of the shots and the timing of the edits and the campy, fun acting. Uh, Shinichi, who also stars as the titular bodybuilder, has definitely studied his Bruce Campbell. The film starts off like the first Evil Dead before going straight on into full splatstick comedy for the second half. It becomes Evil Dead 2 basically halfway through, complete with excessive use of shotguns, wild action scenes using a barbell set and weights, and Shinichi just dropping one-liners, and even some of Ash's classic lines like groovy and come get some. And it all looks like complete shit, of course, with terrible, terrible overlay animation and stop motion being used for some effects. Uh, there's some props that are the wrong color, like the severed head. That's a dark blue. And then it cuts to the actor in light blue makeup. Um, there's, a, <laughs> there's a truly dreadful demon face prosthetic and some blood effects where you can literally see the, the, the piping or the prosthetic. But again, it's the energy of this movie that keeps it going. And you can laugh along at the awful effects because at a certain point, the movie just charms you into accepting it it seems to be a theme uh, it's not like it overstays its welcome either at a cool 63 minutes this movie gets right to the damn point as uh, shinichi's layabout bodybuilder gets a call from his paranormal reporter x saying uh, she'd like to take pictures in his father's old haunted house so his father by the way who is also played by shinichi in this movie and dresses exactly like ash from evil dead um <laughs> Who, who, who killed this woman. Anyway, you'll find out. Shinichi says, sure, uh, when his ex brings along a psychic who activates the ghost of Shinichi's father's lover who attacked him in a fit of jealousy and whose body he hid under the floorboards, well, things go predictably sideways. Uh, it is, it's interesting to see the contrast in staging these scenes in a super cramped little Japanese house. They didn't have sets. They shot this in a house as opposed to the wider rooms of a, like an American cabin or, or a mansion. Uh, a haunted mansion and the, and the claustrophobia is real in a few of these scenes where I can't imagine how they must have squeezed and contorted to get some of these shots. The house itself was owned by Shinichi's real life father uh, who let his son film in it 
in the time between when they had moved out and when it was scheduled to be bulldozed. Uh, it's a perfect setup. It's right next to a cemetery, and it's dilapidated enough at this point to pass as a haunted house. And the plot, which features a haunting more akin to The Grudge than Evil Dead itself, is, is actually an interesting forebear of the J-horror to come in the years following this. Although it was seen not a whole lot in that time, th- this movie, no one saw this really at the time, I, I wonder if this had any influence on the movies to follow, or if it's just coincidence that there are quite a few visual and story similarities, or, or possibly just it could be cultural. Um, I mean, even, like, there's some, there's some Japanese customs in this movie that are broken, like, like wearing shoes in the house. It's a nice touch that, that gives you that feeling. If, okay, so in The Ring, for example, in The Ring, the tech paranoia from the Japanese movie, Ringu, never translated to American audiences because we don't have the same superstitions. Like uh, a black cat crossing your path in Japan wouldn't mean much, nor would walking under a ladder or spilling salt. But in Japan, if you don't say moshmoshi when you answer a phone, for example, you might be a ghost or a fox as they can't pronounce those words according to the superstitions. Or in the case of the ghost, they can't say moshi twice in a row. Right, so when a Japanese person answers the phone, moshi moshi, you respond by saying moshi moshi. Okay, now you know you're both not ghosts or foxes, right? So, look, I know it's not obviously a hard and fast rule. Like it's like in the West, I said you're spilling salt, right? Or you break a mirror. There's that. No, no one really cares anymore. Like oh, seven years bad luck. We don't really care, but there's still that cultural awareness that the lack of moshi moshi could be bad news. So when the phone rings in Ringu. And Sadako doesn't respond with Moshi Moshi, right? There's an added creepy layer to the scene that doesn't translate to the American version of Ring. Uh, although, to Gore Verbinski's credit, he found plenty of other things to freak you out. So, look, at the end of the day, the, the, the hybrid haunting, which references a more traditional Japanese style of ghost, as opposed to the like Lovecraftian book summoning in Evil Dead, is one of the most interesting aspects of Bloody Muscle Bodybuilder to me, as it's one of the things that differs from its cinematic forebear, Evil Dead. But it's worth a watch, even if you're a fan of a, a huge, uh, even if it's just because you're a huge fan of Evil Dead or of deep underground horror cinema or just as a curio to see what it was like if you wanted to make a horror film back in this era but had no money and little access to supplies but had a ton of creativity and passion uh, and were working out a bit and wanted to show off your muscles. Oh, look, let's be clear. What I, so when we think of bodybuilders these days, we like to think of like body dysmorphia giants like Jay Cutler or Ronnie Coleman or even behemoths like Schwarzenegger or Lou Ferrigno. And um, Shinichi, bless his heart, has a scene where his shirt rips off just like in Ferrigno's Hulk in the old TV show. And it's, um, well, I'll put it this way. He's in shape, uh, but mass he hath not. Uh, when I first heard the title for this film, i not going to lie, I was picturing some beast like Bolo Young who couldn't, act a lick, but was bouncing demons off his massive man boobs and crushing heads in his biceps. And instead, I got like a skinny little dude who I could bench press flexing like the kid in Little Giants in some high-key lighting before throwing a weight set around like Frisbees. Um, but no, he's in, he's in good shape. I, I kid, I kid. Um, there's no way you can be mad at a dude who screams, I know now what my real weapon is. It's not my shotgun. It's my muscles. And then rips off his shirt and does battle with a barbell bar. You can't be mad at that. And this movie is way too funny, way too full of the joy of, of film, of filming to be hated on, even if it looks like utter shit from start to finish. I'm, I'm glad we finally have a finished version of this film, uh, even if it took 20 years from the time I heard about it to the time I finally saw it, and even though my big HDTV hates it. So 
Check out Bloody Muscle Bodybuilder in hell for a groovy, low-fidelity time, baby. Uh, it's, it is a lot of fun. Uh, like I said, Evil Dead fans, lo-fi film fans, definitely check it out. And with that, girls and ghoulies, we are done with your Horror Palooza 30 for 30 marathon for 2022. What a great year of movies and some fantastic new finds. I was able to fit in all of my requirements, and I still got to see some brand new, fresh in-theater films mashed in between some movies that went all the way back to 1939. But before we get out of here, until next year, I think it's time we do something a little fun and give out some awards to the film of this year. Warning, there may be some spoilers ahead. So if you want to dip out and come back when you've seen all the films, then now's the time. Otherwise, here we go with this year's uh, uh, Paloozy Prizes, <laughs> I guess. Uh, the best find, the least talked about horror film that was the best film, uh, Caveat. The honorable mention for that goes to Terrified or Atarados. Uh, those two were certainly like the best films that I'd, I'd heard a lot about Terrified. I'd heard nothing about Caveat. Terrified, I think, was um, in horror circles. You might have heard about it. Caveat, no one's talking about it. So I want to give a shout out to that film for being the best horror film that no one's talking about. Go check out Caveat on Shudder for sure. Uh, the Paloozy for scariest moment, uh, Dead Tie. I couldn't, I couldn't rate one higher than the other one. Um, it's, and again, spoiler territory, Caveat's Dead Woman Jump Scare, which just bruh, wrecked me, and Barbarian's Old Woman in the Tunnels. Uh, when she finally pops out. You know it's coming. You're still not ready for it when it happens. And um, honorable mention I will give to, to Terrified. Atorados, uh, uh, not Terrifier 2. That's going to be a tough one to keep separated. There's about eight different times in Terrified where you're going to go, oh, shit. Uh, but definitely the, the two that got me the hardest were Caveat and Barbarian this year. The best kill. Tied. With itself, Terrifier 2, the prolonged bedroom kill and the just the tip kill. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. The just the tip kill because it was funny. It went there and apparently it didn't go as far as they thought of making it go. They actually wanted to go further with it and thought it might be in bad taste, which is hilarious considering what else they did in the movie. Um, but the prolonged bedroom kill might slightly edge the just the tip one out in terms, well, definitely edges it in terms of sheer savagery, brutality, disgustingness, viciousness, violence, cruelty. My God, it goes on forever. And just when you think it's done, there's more. Good Lord. That is, that is, that is the kill that separates the horror fans from the people who are, who just can't handle it. Um, let's see up next, the best folk horror film. I had to watch a bunch of folk horror films this year. Which one was the best? I'm going to say Hellbender talked about it. This episode really f a great film. There's a lot of other ones that were great folk horror films. Dark waters, uh, Witchfinder general were solid, but just, I was, I was the most pleasantly surprised by Hellbender. Um, and again, like I, like I said in the, in the review in this episode, knowing about its production made it even more impressive. Just a very cool movie. Slightly, you know, slightly brought down by its questionable special effects, but overall, fantastic. The worst dialogue, something that was tough to choose this year, 
City of the Dead, my God, was just the the tin-eared, uh, whoever wrote that uh, has never heard people actually speak. As bad as I thought, well, this dishonorable mentions, House of Wax and Halloween Ends, two more recent movies that you'd think would have gotten better, but boy, howdy, some really tin dialogue in all of these movies. Uh, the worst acting by an ensemble cast. Surprisingly, aside from some good moments, it went to Eyes of Fire. There is some absolutely atrocious uses of screen time in uh, in this movie. Even though there are some moments that are good, Eyes of Fire. As I could have, I could have gone to the fifties. Like uh, I could have said, uh, uh, Indestructible Man, pretty easily on this one. But uh, I just had too much fun with that one. <laughs> Eyes of Fire was just painful. Um, other other dishonorable mentions: Bloody Muscle Bodybuilder, Son of Frankenstein. And, oh, my God, head of the family. Whoa. Uh, best Halloween atmosphere. The best movie that felt like a Halloween movie. Like we were actually... And this is, this is in a year where I had a movie called Halloween. And I'll give that movie credit for having a great, like, like party dancing with all the kids and they're playing Dead Kennedy's Halloween. Like, that was, that was nice. But overall, the movie... Bleh, no Halloween atmosphere like the other ones. Um, they lo- like over the course of this trilogy, they steadily lost the Halloween vibe, which was just another pitiful thing about that movie. Nope. Uh, again, winning another award, Terrifier Two. Such great Halloween atmosphere. There was pumpkins. There was people dressed in costumes. There was a dance scene. There was a party. It, the whole thing. You could tell it took place around and on Halloween. Um. Next up, the best final girl. Another award for Terrifier 2. Sienna uh, from Terrifier 2, the best final girl this year. You can't look at her transformation from a bit of a mess at the beginning of the movie to a badass warrior princess at the end and her confrontation with Art and not think she's the best. It was, it was a great transformation, both acting-wise, the way the movie dealt with it. It was badass. It felt cool. It felt satisfying. Um, I do have to shout out Riley from Hellraiser and Tess from Barbarian. Both totally fine, acceptable final girls. In Riley's case, uh, it was more, you know, the movie was more about her coming to terms with how she's just kind of a bad person. And Tess, I thought, got away too easy. So she had a bit of an easier time than Sienna. Sienna overcame the most, and she came out looking the most badass. Gotta give it to Sienna. From Terrifier 2. The Single Dumbest Moment Award. Mm. This is is a tough one to decide. Uh, But I had to go with just the moment that pissed me off the most this year. The moment that I threw my hands up and went, well, that's that. Michael Myers giving Corey an evil and profound look and turning Corey into a bad guy. I know it's not I know it's not that rote. It's not that clear that that's what's happening, but it's totally clear that's what's happening. As soon as it happened, I went, that's I know what's happening with the movie now. This is dumb. I can't believe they're going there. Please no, please no, please no. The rest of the movie went down that path, and it's the dumbest decision in any movie this year. Uh, the dumbest moment, the dumbest idea. I couldn't believe that they decided to go back to that. Stupid trope of Michael makes people evil and ruin a good character arc with that nonsense. Bunch of dishonorable mentions, however. 
The death of Count Yorga, as you probably heard in my review, I was not a fan of that. Um, the deaths of all of the undead, all the bad guys at the end of City of the Dead, where they're, they're vulnerable to the shadow of a cross, and yet they're performing this ritual. I guess, it, I guess it was against their will, but they were chased out of their little lair into a cemetery full of crosses, and a guy just grabs a random cross and throws a shadow over them. Come on. Uh, the evil scheme of the, uh, the silver-haired witch in Snake Girl and the Silver-Haired Witch Probably one of the dumbest, most harebrained, ridiculous, idiotic schemes I can, I've seen in recent memory. I don't know what she was thinking. Uh, hiding in the witch's tree in Eyes of Fire. You have an entire forest with which to traverse and escape the cursed canyon. And the one place you decided to go hang out is in an obviously evil tree. And you see a witch... Down below you, oh, the, I guess this is the witch's tree. Well, we're cool hanging out up here in the branches. What are you doing? Dumb, 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 dumb. Almost as dumb as how he escapes the witch's clutches later, where the main, the main girl suddenly, for some reason, just gets naked and starts preaching at him to, to kill the witch. Okay. Um, and also, let's see, another, another dishonorable mention for dumb moments. Jared Padalecki uh, being Scooby-Doo stupid in House of Wax, I wonder what's in this room. I wonder what's in this room. What does this do? Hey, this looks spooky. I'll go in there. It, oh, stop it. Stop it. It's such a dumb horror trope, and you're doing all of the dumb things for 45 minutes. Let something happen. Could something... Uh, you're doing so many dumb things, nothing's happening. Oh, made me crazy. And finally, the final dishonorable dumb moment mention, the swan dive. At the end of Barbarian, I won't fully spoil it if you haven't seen the movie, but uh, when you see the movie, you'll know the swan dive I mean. It was the moment we all checked out in my theater and went, okay, cool. On to something uh, nicer and, and something nicer to say about Barbarian. The funniest moment in any movie I watched this year came from Barbarian. About half the, halfway through the movie, Justin Long rips, let rip an unexpected line you do not see coming, talking to his mom, turns around and into camera, says something I will not repeat on this show because, <laughs> uh, because I just, because. If you've seen it, you know what I mean. The entire theater d- died. Everyone died, be- partly because of the surprise of it, partly because of the juxtaposition with talking to with his mom, partly because it totally defined who his character was and what was really going on. But uh, that was the funniest moment. My, uh, my boy, 414 Beg and I, in our seats, could not compose ourselves for a good 10 minutes afterwards. Uh, the darkest film, the, the most... Yeah, that, the darkest film, I think it's self-explanatory. The Paluzzi for darkest film is a tie. It might give an edge to one of them. It's a tie between Phil Tippett's Mad God and St. Maud. St. Maud... Mad God is just dark and brutal the entire film. It's, it is just heavy as hell. St. Maud is not quite as dark the entire runtime, but the ending is the most just brutal, black-hearted thing I've seen this year. So I'm going to give him a tie on that, even though I think for the entire runtime, Mad God might have the edge. The single best moment goes to 
Gabriel revealing himself and killing everyone, including an unrecognizable Zoe Bell. Uh, in, of course, Malignant. Uh, one of the craziest movies I've seen this year. Very fun if you just kind of go, just, just let it take the wheel. Malignant, take the wheel. But the moment where Gabriel finally shows up and wrecks an entire police station is easily the best. That was just, I, that was wild. And it was a blast. It was a hoot. The best film of the year. Here we go. The big, the big Paloozie. The big Paloozie. The best film of the year. Drum roll, please. This shouldn't be a surprise if you listen to every episode. It's Hellraiser. It's Hellraiser. I was an enormous fan of the remake of Hellraiser this year. I thought they uh, they did their own thing, but they also nailed so many things that make Hellraiser cool. Um, I, I can't find any flaw with it. I know that there's criticisms from people that wanted something else from it, and I think a lot of them are valid. I th- I've heard definitely heard criticisms where I felt they might have a point, but it didn't ruin the experience for me. I loved Hellraiser. I'm probably going to go watch it again when I'm done recording this tonight. But the runner-up, the the silver medal, has to go to Terrifier 2. Obviously, I got a lot of other awards as well. But uh, that was also, that that's a movie that I'm going to come back to a lot as well. Honorable mentions, basically every other movie I thought was pretty good this year. Caveat, Witchfinder General, Dark Waters, Noroi, The Curse, Terrified, Aterrados, Saint Maud, Hellbender, and Mad God. That's all the like the really good like the ones I highly recommend. All of those movies right there. And that brings us to the end of our show. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in all this year and hanging out with me on this sh- this month-long journey. I hope you had a wonderful Halloween season and had more treats than tricks, unless that's your thing. And if so, that's fine. I, I don't judge. But as always, until next time. I am Sir Ian Dangerous, a.k.a. your Uncle Frank, on Twitter at Skinless Wonder and Instagram at Sir Ian Dangerous. Follow me and my sound designer 414Beg on the Instagram. Check out the Tiki Creeps on Spotify and at TikiCreeps.com. And of course, tell everyone about this show. Help me get out the word. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And remember, as Al Jorgensen said, every day is Halloween. So stay spooky, and we'll see you right here next time on Horror.